Hello, a warm Waconian welcome to the Ed Podcast, the exclusive audio magazine for Cheadle Hume School parents. I'm James, and if you've listened to our first couple of episodes, you'll know I'm currently studying in the Upper Sixth at CHS. As your host, I'll be guiding you through each episode of the Ebb Podcast, and today we'll be exploring the academic side of school. Naturally, many it does probably seem a bit silly referring to the academic side of CHS. I mean, after all, by their very purpose, schools educate. But at CHS, the way academic is spoken about doesn't necessarily mean that as students, we all have our noses stuck inside our textbooks. Instead, we're taught that to be academic is part of a larger package, and however we deem ourselves to be so, whether that's studious, smart, conscientious, or something else, it can manifest in many different forms. I think being academic is having a love for a subject, uh, sitting down and properly immersing yourself in what it has to offer. And I think that comes from two ends, the the student side of things where they open any kind of learning resource they have and they get properly involved. And then from the other side, you have the teachers. And what's really, really amazing is that the teachers sit down and they nurture that feeling of immersion that you get from your subjects and that feeling that you can really think and become involved and captured by what it is you're actually learning. And that's what's fantastic about academia at CHS. And from September 2020, CHS will be making some of the changes to the school's curriculum. So to find out more about how this curriculum has evolved, one of our Year 6 parents had a chat with the CHS Deputy Head, Teaching and Curriculum, Mr Richardson, about the changes that will be taking place. We expect students to work differently in history than the way they work in science. We expect them to think differently as historians than as scientists. And, and enabling the students to understand that, that's quite tricky for them to grasp. Yeah. But that's a desirable difficulty. It's a good thing that they learn to understand that there's difference students will dream of starting their lives beyond the sixth form by enrolling onto a course at the University of Oxford or the University of Cambridge. But how is it possible to ensure that these academic dreams actually become a reality? Join us as CHS's Oxbridge coordinator, Mrs Barfoot, reveals more about the Oxbridge admissions process. Oxford and Cambridge have a far higher emphasis on academic work and they want to see that you have uh, been involved in your subject beyond the curriculum. So it's really important uh, that the personal statement reflects the sort of wider reading, uh, attendance at lectures, completion of online courses, all of those sort of academic activities that students should have been doing. In this episode's What Did You Do Today? You can catch up with a few students who are using their co-curricular time to combine their love of learning with wider issues through an activity which not only develops their skills but is especially relevant today. As we step into the world of Model United Nations, which I personally know all too well, or as is more affectionately known here, Model United Nations is called Munch. Nice to have that sort of academic community with like people that are very like-minded to you, that want to achieve the same goal of setting up a conference and sort of attending the conferences. And it's very important to have that kind of communal aspect to it because then you almost have like a MUN family if you like and I think that's quite nice to have. Yeah I definitely agree that's my favourite part about Munch, it's like definitely the people. Whether they had a blast, an electrifying time or it just got the cogs working in their mini minds, Year 4 had a blast getting their science on at Manchester Science and Industry Museum and let me tell you that is one of my most favourite places to visit in Manchester. 
In this episode, they tell you what they saw, all they learned, and of course, their favourite moments from the trip. We learnt that the dynamo, a man created oh, yeah. it by the sewers, and he managed to light up all Manchester with one massive dynamo. There has never been a better time to learn a language, tells CHS's Head of Languages, Mr Wilson. He explains why it's never been more important to explore different dialects and cultures in today's modern world and why. He says CHS is proud to offer its students so many linguistic opportunities. No one language is more important than another language. It's about your particular experience and what is important for you as an individual. There might be family reasons for that, there might be perhaps career intentions, but um, languages are all important and we want to give the message that actually English isn't enough. Um, you can see the world through a slightly different lens if you are experiencing it through another language and through the culture that that language represents. And for this episode's Old Waconian of the Month, Deputy Head of Crown Court Prosecutions for the North West, Annabelle Hartley, class of 1993, tells us what her busy role entails when she visited CHS to talk to the Upper Sixth about hate crime. It's never dull. It's something different every day. Also, I particularly like the fact that we are helping victims and witnesses. We are right at the end of the line for victims and witnesses, and we want to support them in the criminal justice system wherever we can. Before all that, though, what is your experience of homework? Personally, I think that homework is something that, well, it's a necessary evil, really, isn't it? As much as I hate to admit it, you don't really want to do it. But then when it's done, and you hand it in, and then you get it back, and you see that full score, that 80% or 90% or even 100% on the odd day, you know, if you get lucky or you work hard. That's a really good thing to experience. Personally, you know, I've, I've sometimes found difficulties when doing certain pieces of homework. I've run myself in circles or most often I find myself overthinking what it is that I actually need to do and what I need to achieve and what goals I need to reach. And when I do that, the support is incredible. Let's see what other students think. Year 9 reporter Louisa White hit CHS's hallways at break time to ask her classmates for their views on the topic. So what do you think about the working habits given for homework? So I think it's a very good uh, system, to be honest. I actually think it is because it encourages you to do better and better. Okay, thank you very much. So what feedback and support do you get from your teachers in regards to homework? Uh, they tell us what we need to do better, which is good. So how do you find that homework helps you? Um, homework in general just it emphasizes the meaning of having self-learning, taking the initiative to, to learn by yourself. So I'd say that it's an excellent opportunity in general for in preparation for universities because this technique of self-learning is required for um, university learning and career use. Okay, thank you very much. So how do you find the homework at CHS? Well, it depends what teacher is giving the homework. Sometimes they, some teachers give little homework and some teachers give a lot of homework. Okay, thank you very much. So I think it is safe to say that this topic has provoked quite a reaction among the students, but homework must also have an impact on the teachers as well. It's a two-sided process. So to find out more from those who actually set the homework and mark it, Louisa actually went and caught with a few of her teachers to ask how much time students should spend on their homework and whether they have any tips for when it comes to studying outside of the classroom. Do you have any tips to manage the workload overnight with lots of homework to do? Yeah, so the tips would be to remember that you are only advised to spend 30 minutes on your homework at Year 9. You're welcome 
to spend longer. If you feel that um, you, you don't have time to do any more, you can always get um, a parent to sign your book to say that my child has spent this time and that would be satisfactory. Read the instructions really carefully uh, initially because that will save you a lot of time highlighting keywords in the instructions and following those to the letter would actually help. So if you're asked to read through something before you answer the questions, that would save you time if you did that really carefully, highlighting keywords. And finally, looking for really good websites, a go-to website, your GCSE Bite Size, the really good concise um, piece of information like that would, would help you. As well. Do you think the working habit system is beneficial to students and if so, why? Generally, I think a working habits grade is quite a good idea because it's not just about the intelligence of people, it's about their um, approach to their studies and about their attitude to work and taking responsibility for their own learning. And I think that's really important to take that on board because it doesn't matter how bright you are, if you are um, lazy or if you don't put enough effort in, that will obviously have repercussions. So I think it's a nice indicator, but sometimes the terminology can be a little bit tricky to apply. Thank you very much. So how much homework should a student be doing every night? Well, it depends on which year group the student's in, doesn't it? And um, I would say that for years 9 and 10, as it's written on the homework timetable, I would say that each time you get set a homework, I'd expect you to be doing 30 minutes of work for me, for my subject. But then when you get into sixth form, I'd be expecting you to do a bit more. Maybe um, an hour each time we've had a lesson would be about right. So even if that's not something that's set, it would be like doing some extra reading around the topic or reviewing your notes that you've made. So, right, here it is. It is now time for one of our regular features, Old Waconian of the Month. After this episode, we'll be introducing our special guest with a brand new jingle. Oh yeah, here it is. Let's go. An old whack. An old Waconian. Old Waconian. Old whack. The old Waconians. I'm Annabelle Hartley. Well, I'm the Deputy Head of Crown Court Prosecutions for the North West and I'm based in Preston. I work for the Crown Prosecution Service and we're responsible for um, every prosecution that starts in England and Wales. I manage a team of lawyers who are responsible for all the Crown Court work that comes out of Carlisle Crown Courts, Preston Crown Court and Burnley Crown Court. So my day is making legal decisions with regards to cases that come across my desk, both in terms of appeals that come in from the police and also decisions that need making with cases that are at court. We obviously also have to manage our business, manage our service, and I'm responsible for different work streams and making sure that we have uh, the right results at the right time. It's never dull. It's something different every day. Also, I particularly like the fact that we are helping victims and witnesses. We are right at the end of the line for victims and witnesses, and we want to support them in the criminal justice system wherever we can. I think my favourite memory has to be the fact that my two best friends are still my two best friends from here. So, um, Vicky and Fran, I am godmother to uh, Vicky's children and Vicky is godmother to mine. She was bridesmaid at my wedding and so I think that and, and, and Fran is still um, very close like sisters so I think it's really important that you maintain those bonds um, as you get older and that, and that Cheadle Hume can help provide friendship for life. Hello, this is the Ebb Podcast and we are now speaking with old Waconian Annabel Hartley, class of 1993. 
As someone working in a legal profession, let's find out more about what she remembers from her time as a student at CHS not so long ago. I think that it gave me the discipline to do long and tedious things, particularly when it came to Latin. Um, I also think that it gave me the ability to work with lots of different people and also to interact with people at different stages of their lives. If you wanted to work for the Crown Prosecution Service or in law in general, I think perhaps you can, con you can consider doing a law degree, obviously, but you can come to it through many different channels and convert at the end of the day. Um, whether you want to be a barrister or a solicitor, it doesn't matter. And the Crown Prosecution Service offers different avenues for people, whether you want to do advocacy-based, whether or not you want to be at the grassroots of, of the service, or whether or not you want to do management, which is what I've done. Um, it offers a lot of opportunity. Law in general, of course, is many and varied. Um, I've been in two different areas of law. I was in civil practice and then went to the public sector. I think that it's often good to go to a court, watch and see what happens and, and, and do some work experience. An old whack. An old Waconian. Old Waconian. Old whack. Old Waconians. Old Waconians. Students joining CHS in Year 7 will be the first cohort of pupils to experience the school's new curriculum reforms in September 2020. This is something that I don't really often think about. The way I learn uh, can vary, actually. Um, sometimes it can just be sitting down with uh, a bunch of flashcards and I've got a, you know writing definitions, especially for economics. Sometimes it involves mind maps as well, the way I think is quite categorical. I often wonder how the teachers also find the process of actually teaching us. Uh, I guess any parents of those who may be joining the senior school next year will actually be especially keen to understand more about the changes. So who better to ask these burning questions than a current year six parent. Charlotte's mum sat down with CHS Deputy Head Teaching and Curriculum, Mr Richardson, to find out more. I'm Lee Richardson, I'm Deputy Head of Teaching and Curriculum. Now I'm Vicky Antwistle, parent of Molly Black. My daughter's in year six, hopefully to go into year seven next September. First of all, Lee, we've heard about the changes CHS is planning to introduce to the curriculum. Can you tell me what this means? Um, yeah, in very simple terms, we are revising the entire curriculum for Year 7 and Year 8 and probably partly through into Year 9 for some subjects. And it's a kind of root and branch reform, so obviously over time we iterative change in these things. We change a little bit each year um, in certain subjects, but this time we are wiping the slate clean and starting completely from scratch and writing a completely new curriculum starting in September of 2020. So does this mean that the current system isn't working in your opinion? What it means is the current system isn't optimal, I think. So it's not that it's broken, otherwise we would have changed it more dramatically sooner. But there's a whole bunch of pressures acting upon the curriculum, which we're trying to respond to all the time by tinkering effectively and changing little bits at a time. But we've got to the point where we kind of think, actually, you know, we need to just kind of start from scratch. And we probably would have done it earlier if it hadn't been that a lot of other curriculum change was forced upon us by government. So obviously in the last four or five years, we've changed every single GCSE specification, every single A-level specification. We've had to rewrite all of our schemes of work for all of those courses. And asking teachers to completely revisit year seven and year eight at the same time probably would have been foolish and we would have potentially underdeveloped it. So, and, I, and I wanted this to be a really, really big rewrite um, and take into account lots and lots of new thoughts on, on curriculum design. And therefore, it was important that we had the resource for it. So we've kind of stalled it a little bit. 
so that we've got the time and we can put the resources we can do it properly. Um, and we are putting quite a lot of resource into it so to make sure we do do it properly. So from September next year, is it going to be year seven, year eight and year No, so year seven from September of next year and then following through with that year group through into year eight and through oh, into okay. year nine. So the existing year seven will carry on with the schooler work and curriculum that we've got at the moment, but the new year seven will have everything new as they will. And will it school. be across all the subjects? It will be across all the subjects, absolutely. So how do you think that pupils in Year 7 are going to adapt to the, um, the new curriculum? They, they, they won't know any different. Right, OK. And actually, one of the interesting things about it is it will probably be less of a change for them than it has been in the past. One of the things that we want to do more of in Year 7 and Year 8 is interdisciplinary working. What's tended to happen when you move from primary school to secondary school is you go from a situation where in primary school you have some discrete subjects, but you're working quite a lot on project work you know, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary studies of a particular subject where you're looking at, I don't know, you're looking at the Black Death, and you might be looking at an English angle, you might be looking at a bit of history, you might do a bit of art, there might be some RS component to it, um, and that's, that's normal working in primary school. Then you get through to secondary school and everything suddenly goes into these departmental silos, right. and you've got 15 different subjects and everything's completely separate. Um, we want to do some more of that primary school style interdisciplinary project work in okay. year seven and year eight because we think it has a real value. As a result of that, I think the students will see some become ways of working that are much more familiar to them in primary school and be less of a change than there previously would have been. And the other thing that we'll that they'll see, which is more similar to primary working, is the idea that things are a bit more connected and a bit more joined up. So one of the things we want to try and achieve is that all of the teachers who are teaching a particular subject in Year 7 know exactly what's going on in all the other subjects. And if, for example, I don't know, let's say I'm a geography teacher and I'm going to teach the students how to draw a graph to represent some climate data, I'll know where they've been put graphing elsewhere. They may well have done graphing in science or they may well have done graphing in maths and I'll be able to see exactly where that's happened and I'll be able to build on their prior knowledge. Right. Okay. Um, whereas, currently, to be honest, Departments tend to operate in their silos, they do their own thing. And obviously that's very different from primary, where your primary class teacher knows everything that you're doing. And even if they're not teaching you every single subject, they certainly know what's going on and therefore they can make sure that everything that's happening is very, very closely integrated. And we think there's real benefits from that. We think there's real benefits from all of the teachers in all of the subjects knowing what's happening in all of the other subjects and therefore knowing when the children walk through the door into their classroom, what they've studied in other subjects and what they've learned in other subjects and they can build upon that. And the, and the other thing is, I think there are some desirable difficulties in students studying different subjects and understanding different ways of working. For example, we expect students to work differently in history than the way they work in science. We expect them to think differently as historians than as scientists. And, and enabling the students to understand that, that's quite tricky for them to grasp, yeah. but that's a desirable difficulty. It's a good thing that they learn to understand that there's difference. But do we want them to um, have to learn that there's different ways in which they're assessed in, in, in history and science, and that the way in which their work will be marked in history and science will be different, or that the way in which they draw a graph in science will be different from the way in which they draw a graph in geography? No, actually, that's, that's, a, that's an undesirable difficulty. That's just making life harder than it really needs right. to be. So what we're trying to do with the coordination of the building all these schemes of work in the 
the subject is to say, actually, let's understand, let's assess in roughly the same way across all the subjects. Let's use the same kind of terminology when we're talking about the same thing across all the subjects. If there are common shared techniques, such as graphing or some kind of mathematical technique, let's make sure we teach it in the same way. So they're not being taught it slightly differently in this subject, and the teacher saying, well, this is how we do it in physics. And the other teacher, well, this is how we do it in geography. Well, why? No, is there a good reason? And if there isn't a good reason, let's do it in the same way. So we just make it a little bit more accessible and straightforward for the students. Okay, so from what you're saying, it's really the teachers that are going to have the biggest impact. Absolutely. So the children, you know, as parents, is there anything that we can do extra to support the children? Or really, they're, um, not, they're not going to really... Other than, other than taking an interest in the way you yeah. normally would, um, I don't think there is anything specific. What, the other part of what we're doing as part of the project is we're trying to make the um, new curriculum much more transparent, very visible to parents and then them to understand what their children should be studying at any given time. We're going to, we're going to provide parents with much more information than they've had before. That's always a good thing. Well, we, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you very much. And we are back. Okay, still to come, you can hear what the juniors learned on their latest science trip. Find out why Munch is more than just a debating society and delve a little deeper into the world of Oxbridge to find out what's really awaiting students when they set their sights on what many view to be the ultimate academic goal. So let's now pop over to the Christopher Simon building, which is our language building at CHS, and let's talk with CHS's Head of Languages, Mr Wilson, to talk about the skills required to study languages successfully and how students learning Spanish, French or German, or in fact any form of communication for that matter, have a whole world of opportunity ready and waiting for them. I'm John Wilson, Head of Modern Languages uh, here at CHS. I've been here for 15 years now. Um, this was the school I did my NQT year at and I've loved working here for various reasons. I really feel that learning modern languages is valued here and I feel privileged to work at a school where that is the case. Learning languages in my view is fundamental. I became a language teacher because yeah, I wanted to promote the fact that language learning is useful. I wanted to promote the idea that it's not just for really academic people because um, ultimately the primary objective is successful communication. Often exams can rely on perhaps too heavily on things like accuracy and I don't want that to put students off learning because successful communication is such a motivating part of learning languages. We see it all the time when we take trips abroad where even just simple initial communication with a greeting and that response coming back it is enough to encourage students to think, you know what, this is really worthwhile, I want to improve and continue on my language journey here. Another thing we really focus on here at CHS is the importance of culture. Languages don't exist outside of culture, they're all driven, they're all by the culture that they sort of represent. And you don't even have to, have to go beyond Manchester to see that. Obviously we do take our trips abroad and we immerse ourselves in those cultures, but... We're also privileged to be just right here in Manchester where we have such a diverse linguistic community. And that's reflected in our school. Um, the last count, we've got about 25 languages which our students speak as first languages alongside English at home. And we are trying to celebrate that as much as possible at the moment with our Language of the Month feature. Our first language was Hungarian, and that was September. Our second language in October 
um, was German, and we are looking at doing Bengali for for our November language and Norwegian for our December language. That's um, that's just what's happening so far. So we have this linguistic diversity in the school, and no one language is more important than another language. It's about your particular experience and what is important for you as an individual. There might be family reasons for that. There might be perhaps career intentions, but um, languages are all important and we want to give the message that actually English isn't enough. Um, You can see the world through a slightly different lens if you are experiencing it through another language and through the culture that that language represents. That said, we do, on the curriculum, we do focus on French, German and Spanish and we try to make our curricula as exciting as possible. We also want to emphasise that it's not just about those public exams, the, we do the IGC and the pre-U at present, but it's not just about those, we provide lots of other opportunities as well. Um, for example, at the end of last year, our year 10 sat much more of a, a vocational style exam called the Real Lives Paper. It's a listening exam and they're put in a situation where there is an emergency which they need to respond to and we were really pleased to get 100% pass rate in our first experience of that but more importantly it gave the students confidence with their listening and also a reminder that these a language is a really useful tool we give lots of other opportunities on the co-curriculum such as our recent modern language debating competition which we host here every year at Cheadle Hume where students are debating current affairs which they may have to challenge debating in their own language but they're doing this in either French German and Spanish and um, that's a rewarding experience for those involved. It's also really useful for our younger learners to, to watch our older learners doing that as a sort of motivational tool and a realisation that those students who are now able to debate about whether it's the important issues in education, whether it's political issues, they only a couple of years ago were in their shoes doing sort of more simple, dealing with simple language, which has eventually led to uh, to being able to tackle these uh, this more sophisticated stuff. And of course, we offer many opportunities abroad. We now have exchanges in each of our language and they are linked to partner schools in France, Germany and Spain. And this is a really enriching experience for both staff and pupils. It's another example, just like the debating competition, of where, yes, students are encouraged to come out of their comfort zone, but the rewards are obvious and overcoming the challenge of being in a new culture and embracing that and experience that difference doesn't mean to say that something is better or worse, it's just different. And this is a, a really good opportunity for our students and it's something we are looking to develop further in that in the sixth form, for example, now, in a way sort of reflecting the language learning experience at university we are going to try and expect as many of our students as possible to have an extended time abroad, which they've arranged through the partner schools or maybe with work experience. And that would be on top of the more standard school trips where we go together to have a collective experience. At Parents' Evening, a regular feature is that parents feel that their own language skills can be, they can feel inadequate with their own language skills, think, oh, I can't help my child with language learning. And I get that, but I think it's important to realise that to be helpful in this situation, you don't have to be the expert. And a good example I would give is allow your child to almost teach you something that they've done in the lesson today. For example, they may have learnt a new tense. Well, a great learning experience for them would be to have the opportunity to explain that to somebody else. And you could be the recipient of that. The big one is also vocab learning. Now, a lot of parents enjoy sharing this experience with their child because obviously they are enhancing their own knowledge of the language and 
that shared experience can mean sharing approaches to being successful with the learning. And I think that's really good. I think also if we break things down actually to learning a list of words and understanding the challenges that your child has with learning that list, I think it, it's a really good insight into your own child's approach to learning and how and what works for them and what perhaps doesn't work for them. So why learn a language? A lot of people may ask, especially when we live in a country where we have English as our first language and I'm not going to argue, English is at this moment in time, in this moment in history, the most important language in the world. However, there are still a large number of people in this world who don't speak English. The other side of the coin, yes, going out into the world of business, a lot of the time the language you will end up using is English. But I would always say to my students, even if ultimately that is the case, if you are able to break the ice with a potential client, potential friend, potential lover, if you are able to break the ice in their own language, the language of their heart, that's going to go a long way. Um, and I think that that obviously counts for a lot. You are you are tapping into a, a whole variety of cultures. You're a whole new variety of interesting people. As I've already mentioned, another perspective of the world. I feel privileged to be in a, to teach subjects where actually we sit very comfortably with any combination of subjects. I get students in year 11 and say, okay, um, now I'm not doing language because I want to do sciences, or I'm not doing language because I, but you know, that's nonsense. Languages can fit very well next to any of those subjects. Um, let's take medicine for an example. Yes, you need to do the subjects you need to do. You need to have your chemistry and another science, but why can't that third subject be a language? Um, if you speak to people about what they would view as a, what's their impression of a, a good doctor, for example, I would suggest that communication would be pretty high up the priority list for, for a patient. And just think of all the other opportunities that might present themselves if you are able to use your skills in countries where English isn't the main language. Um, by choosing a language, by ch choosing to... Um, be bilingual or even multilingual, you are never closing any doors in life. You're only opening doors. Cliche as that sounds. The language department here is a really rewarding department to work in. We've got people from so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences of language learning, um, people who have been in other education systems, for example, and can bring that experience to the table. Leading this department means that every day is really exciting. And actually, as a linguist myself, the fact that in my workplace, I get to speak the language that I love, in my case, Spanish, every day, not a day goes by where I don't have meaningful conversations in a language that I love, it really counts for a lot. And whilst I might seem like an indulgence, I every day I go home, I think, yeah, I really enjoyed today. And that's a big part of it. Hi, I'm Natasha. I'm in year 10 and I take French and German. I'd really like to take them both for A-levels. I think it would be really great to speak them fluently. I'd like to go travelling and hopefully have a career with 
languages although I'm not quite sure what yet and I also do language ambassadoring so in open mornings and I'll promote languages and talk to other people about them and things like that. Stephen Spender Buckley was the head of languages when he passed away they named an award after him. In end of year nine after my exams I did well in them both so I was given the prize. I guess it's just working hard in languages and making the most out of it. Obviously I felt very proud to win. It's quite challenging because obviously languages aren't that easy but I feel when you enjoy them you're more motivated to work hard and do your best. Languages are obviously really hard as many people struggle with them. I think I'm quite lucky because I just seem to pick it up quite quickly and it also does help when you enjoy something and have an interest for it. You're more likely to work hard and do your best so I feel like some people that do struggle with languages it's fair enough because it's a very <laughs> it's a hard concept speaking some Thing completely different to what you're used to but um, I think if you work hard and you you know you are you are interested then anyone can do it because in the long run it just might take a bit longer. I think you've got to stick at it because there are bits that are harder than others. I always find grammars a lot harder than vocab to get my head around but it's just practice because I've done French for three years this is my fourth year of it so I, I feel like the stuff I did in year seven now just comes uh, automatically to me and it does to most people so I think if you just keep practicing and working hard then it, it's quite easier. I really enjoy it when I finally understand something and I can like then speak a certain amount of it fluently. We play a lot of competitive games <laughs> which is always good. I've got some friends that don't enjoy it and I like helping them because when you can you know might as well make the most out of it. If you'd like to learn more about how to help students with their study of language visit the CHS blog where Mr Wilson actually shares his 12 tips on how parents can assist with languages homework. Yes, there is a URL or a web link coming up, whatever you like to call it, so get ready. Visit blogs.cheadlehumeschool.co.uk Right, here's a question for you. Have you ever been to Manchester's Science and Industry Museum? If you have not, I absolutely implore you to go. It's a fantastic place to spend some time. Whether it's actually widening your knowledge of the city's cotton mill industry and its textiles gallery, being taken to lofty heights in the air and space hall, or getting grips with the hands-on exhibitions showing science in action. Early this month, CHS's young science fans and ever-inquisitive year four pupils visited the museum and had a great time exploring everything it had to offer. Upon their return, the Ed podcast caught up with them, of course, and asked a few of them what they had learned and to reveal their trip's absolute highlights. My name's Idrice, um, I'm in year four, and my favourite subject is maths. No, not maths, um, PE. <laughs> I'm Holly, I'm in year four, and my favourite subject probably math. We went to the Science Industry Museum. Well, we went to the experiment room. We could do lots of different things there. Like um, the ghost hand experiment, where you like put your hand through a dome thing, and then it looks like you're just shaking your own hand. When we tested out the dynamo with the bike, when you would spin, when you would be in the bike, you would pedal as fast as you can, and then the dynamo would um, spin a magnet um, in between a wire, and that would make electricity. We learned that um, the dynamo, um, oh, yeah. a man um, created oh, yeah. it um, under 
by the sewers and he managed to light up all Manchester with one massive dynamo. And the dynamo when it was it was like a big circle thing that had just like a little magnet in it that kept on spinning and spinning around. We actually amazingly managed to lift a car. In the experiment room you had to like like you pull, you were you spinning something and then, and then the, the, the car, car would move up, but it took like a lot of power. And then we saw where cotton comes from, so it comes from a plant, and then what they would do in a factory to make clothes with all the cotton. So they would get these machines that spin the cotton around and you can help make clothes. And then there were these different jobs that you had to do. There was like, also um, a woman one. Like if the cotton breaks and you can put it back together because they thought that the woman had really delicate fingers. And then the one about the children, where there was a cleaning one that the children could do. But then it was ages five like ten or something, but then they thought it was too dangerous, so they thought ages to nine could do it. Um, we also tested our old inventions, what um, scientists made, like the electric belt, what was supposed to give oh, yeah, you good was, muscles. Yeah, but, but you actually just, it just electrocuted you. But we managed to not electrocute <laughs> Miss Fry. <laughs> Well, it's that time again, where we ask, what did you do today? Let's catch up with a few of the students and tell us what they've actually been up to in school beyond their regular timetables, because of course there is much more to learning than just being in the classroom. So, in keeping with this episode's academic theme, we spoke with those whose co-curricular interests, they say, enhances their academic study, as we enter the fascinating world of munch. Not exactly a society for eating favourite foods, Munch is actually an activity where everyone can get involved and has many, many different aspects that can open up a world of opportunity. The Ed Podcast popped along to one of their weekly sessions. I like Munch because we can we can like talk about issues in the world and try and tackle them as a society. It's just been a very open community to talk to you about global issues because right now we need more people who can discuss more openly more efficiently with proper knowledge and common sense about worldwide issues so having this munch chat as an example brings out the, that political side of us earlier yeah it's really good i'm rohan i'm maya munch is basically a model united nations conference that occurs at our school and it's organised by pupils, but it's supervised by staff as well. And uh, there's obviously lots of well, the United Nations conferences all sort of across the UK and in, in the world, but Munch is the name for our sort of conference that we have at the school. And loads of other schools come and debate, and there's also, like, a, like Rohan said, an organisational aspect to it, so you don't just have to debate. We have press who um, write about the conference and everyone gets a, like a magazine when they go. So there's lots of different aspects of it. Anyone can get involved, like regardless of like what your sort of interests are. I was one of the secretary generals for uh, Munch, the one that just had that's just gone. So I was just sort of like organising things, just generally making sure everything sort of 
running smoothly on the day, just walking around committees, making sure everyone's okay, they don't need anything. I'm an event manager, there's one other one as well. And we sort out like voting placards, we make sure everyone's in the right rooms, kind of registers, like, all the behind the scenes that people don't necessarily notice. I think I just sort of like, it was, I started very young, so I started in uh, year six as like a secretary who's someone who delivers notes between rooms. So I was just like, like very small and it was all quite scary. I was like, oh, I think may as well give it a try, see what it's about. And they, they came down to the junior school looking for secretary. So I was like, may as well put my name forward. And then uh, after that, I just sort of went into year seven. Then I sort of gradually got more and more involved in it. As I thought, I remembered it from the junior school. I thought, wow, that's actually an option here. So yeah, that's how I just sort of came up the ranks and then yeah. <laughs> My munch journey was completely different because I only joined in year 12. So I didn't know what munch was until I came here. And I'm really interested in writing and kind of journalism. So I started on the press because um, I became friends with people who did munch. So I was like, oh, I'll just do it and try and make friends. And then I really enjoyed it. And then it just kind of went really quickly for me. I went like through the ranks really quickly. And then all of a sudden I was event manager and I love organizational stuff. So I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. There's definitely a greater appreciation for how the conference is actually set up and run. Like when we attend conferences, you don't necessarily see the actual effort that goes into it. But when you organize it yourself, you actually see, oh wow, people have put time and effort into this and it makes you really appreciate and understand it. And much in general actually just sort of improves your current affairs knowledge and what's actually going on around you and makes you more aware as a person and like a society. Yeah, and we both do politics A-level, so doing Munch really helped, and we've both done away conferences as well, I've debated, and just researching and just knowing more things about different countries you wouldn't necessarily know about is really, really interesting. I'd say, like, more broadly in terms of life, it's just sort of improve my sort of social abilities and like my confidence quite a lot. It actually takes a lot to go stand up and so in front of people representing a country that you've never heard of before, you don't know the views of, and having to articulate their beliefs in a way that's suitable and appropriate is very challenging initially. But I think that also builds your confidence and makes you more of a rounded person, being able to interact with people on, in like a forum that you're not familiar with at all. And I think that's quite important. Yeah, I definitely agree with Rohan. I think confidence for me especially was a big one. I'm not scared like in lessons to put my hand up because I've like spoken in front of loads, like hundreds of people. Um, so I think it's really helped on that front. And again, just current affairs, it's made me really appreciate that a lot more. And I can link it into my history and my politics and my English because it all kind of fit together and fit really well with Munch. Definitely, yeah. like a more of a community. Like, mm -hmm. I think that, that aspect of it's quite important to me, especially. I think it's just nice to have that sort of academic community with like people that are very like minded to you that want to achieve the same goal of setting up a conference and sort of attending the conferences. And it's very important to have that kind of communal aspect to it because then you almost have like a MUN family if you like and I think that's quite nice to have. Yeah I definitely agree that's my favourite part about Munch it's ne like definitely the people because I especially we have quite a big group of us who do it and it was our last conference it was quite sentimental even though it was only my second <laughs> I was really sad mm. and just walking around and seeing everyone doing their different jobs um, it was really nice to see yeah. it all come together at the conference. So we've been to one in Shrewsbury area kind of like Tudor Hall like 
Banbury area and like just sort of all around the UK in general. We've been invited to Hong Kong, so sort of Paris, California, and things like that. But you know, we just and like Madrid, I think, was one. Yeah, yeah. So, like all over the world, they do it. So yeah, it's cool. we can always come back to run this conference if we wanted to. It would be again like behind the scenes. I think some universities actually do have that kind of society, like an MUN society. On the day when you come in and there are flags everywhere, everyone's yeah. all dressed up. It's it's, yeah, it's, it's a big thing. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the day itself, like when you see all your efforts come to fruition, you think, wow, this is what we've been working for and like especially having like having done it twice now it's been quite like nice to sort of like you know bang that gavel at the start of the conference be like okay we've achieved it we're here now this is this is what's all been building up to just seeing it all come to come together is quite nice it's quite a nice yeah. feeling i would agree and the weekend starts on the friday night because we stay in school for hours to set up yeah and even that experience is so fun because obviously being at school like in the night is quite exciting. <laughs> um, and yeah, and the weekend itself, again, just seeing everything all done up and seeing people use like the voting placards and seat labels that you've been preparing for so long is really exciting. We have mini munch tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Which yeah. Is very exciting. Yeah, so that's where we get all these sort of younger, like lower school together and they can sort of debate in like a less sort of like intimidating fashion. It just occurs in like Holland Hall kind of area. And we just sort of get them all together. It's like a nice, like, fr- more friendly, uh, approachable kind of forum yeah. for debate. I think Cheeto is really good for encouraging people from a young age because if I was in year seven and people come around asking if I wanted to do munch, I would be really scared. But I think the way we do mini munch and we also have year seven days later on in the year, it just kind of eases you into it. So it builds your confidence from 11 up to 18. Like some, sometimes they just yeah. like get an elephant and they say, okay, you need to build this wall and you can focus on these questions a bit more. Though. Okay. I'm Ruby and I'm in year six. I'm Fleur and I'm in year six. Uh, mini munch. Yeah. <laughs> Our teacher, she came with a letter and loads of people took it. And it's about this weird thing. No one knew what it was really. No. It was like mini munch debating. And we still didn't know we, what it was we when thought we thought it there, was going to be quite like small, small smaller than it like, was. And, and then, then, yeah. It was actually quite fun. We're going to um, argue us, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to try something different. And I think we like debating, don't we? I think we both quite enjoy like civilized debating. More that's more fun in looking oh, yeah. at topics and things. I felt quite like overwhelmed. Overwhelmed yeah. and like I was quite excited but nervous as well. Yeah, the, the, I thought it was just year sevens in us. Yeah, I knew there was going to be some year sevens. Then there was like. Year, year eights. Nines I think, was there year nines? I, there was year eights, definitely, but maybe year nines as well. It was really fun. It was, yeah. I definitely enjoyed the smaller rooms, I think. We'd, yeah. Because it was quite hard to get a say in the big room. Yeah, because everybody room. had their card up, so it was like you barely got chosen. But I think in the smaller rooms, everyone, I think most of like our year six groups got to have a say in everything. Yeah. I enjoy say, like, saying things. Saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like having good points i think coming up with good points is because you know feel like you're actually part of it then you're not just watching yeah it's like in the future you need to be able to like talk to people that you don't know so it's like quite good to like get your confidence yeah Yeah, definitely confidence also obviously trying something new and some people might want to be a politician when we're older and having this experience you know furthers the curriculum yeah, I think it'll be harder 
when we're older because yeah. there's you, there's more expected of you. Yeah. Because in year six we were like the special we guests like, mm. almost. <clears throat> but you know, if we did one thing, we kind of were praised mm. for it. But and then year seven, there's loads of year sevens there, so yeah, so it's it quite hard be. to you know <clears throat> be good. We said things like you can't stockpiling. We did about how countries have to look after their you know, their, their farm, their animals. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do they have to look after them? And then... It's quite, like, calm and, like... And then also, it definitely helps with confidence, confidence doesn't yeah. it? Definitely, because you're standing up and it's, you know, I was definitely... Yeah, exactly. When I did my first question, I was just saying question. It was really easy. My heart was beating so much. Yeah, I know, see. <laughs> I don't know why. Because me and B were, like... Saying, um, right, you go, no, you go. And I was the person that did it, so we both put our cards up. Let me tell you, it is an absolute dream for many students, but how realistic is it to attend the University of Oxford or the University of Cambridge at CHS? Year upon year, students embark with what many call the ultimate academic goal. But exactly how much of it does come down to grades? How much depends upon the course itself? The Ed Podcast caught up with a few students who have just completed their UCAS forms and asked them how they're feeling whilst they eagerly await the potential interview call-up. My name is Hugo and I currently study politics, history and economics. My name's Alana and I currently study politics, Spanish and drama. The course I'm applying for at Oxford is archaeology and anthropology. The course on offer looked really good and you can mould it to how you'd like to study it as well. So uh, that appealed to me as well. I'm applying for human, social and political sciences at Cambridge and I've studied politics as one of my subjects and always just fell in love with it as soon as I started studying it and when I discovered the course that involved sociology which is what I did my EPQ on I just felt like I'd found the perfect course for me and I was really attracted into applying for it. I'd like to study at Oxford because I think it's more about how direct the study is so you get a lot of help in terms of you have tutorials where it's sort of one-on-one teaching and problems that you find more difficult in lectures for example get ironed out in those tutorials also for me it was the best place to apply for the course i think it's more about how broad and how well versed the courses uh, and the course outline looked yeah and to follow on from that as well like the prestige of some of the lecturers that you're able to get first-hand advice from and learn from is amazing. That's the college I'm applying for. There's uh, a professor who actually has like a specific interest in Hispanic studies and studying Spanish at A-level. This was really attractive to me in particular because I was wanted a way to continue my study of Spanish whilst also pursuing my love of politics. Yeah, yeah, completely. You, you sort of, you read these books and these articles and you see the author and then you find out they could possibly teach you in one of your seminars is quite amazing yeah and the process so far i feel like it's been not the most stressful at the moment to get the deadline was quite hard there was an early deadline and obviously you want your personal statement to reflect the best you can be there's quite a lot of pressure on that i feel like for definite 
the most stressful parts are yet to come. Yeah, in terms of the actual process, it's structured in the best possible way because you have quite a long summer to read about what course you'd apply for, draft your personal statement. And it just means that, you know, like Alana said, it's not super, super stressful until, you know, until later stages because you sort of, you've read in the summer, uh, you know what you're applying for, you sort of put a few drafts out, practice some interview questions, things like that. And it just means you can arrive at school with, in the best possible mindset to apply, yeah. I would say the hardest part of the process has probably been not knowing. Yeah. So like, not knowing if you get an interview and if you do, what they're gonna ask you because they can ask you anything about everything you've submitted. Like I've submitted essays, I've done a test and I've submitted my UCAS. So I could get asked anything about that and I find that not knowing has been quite stressful. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it's, it's difficult because, especially for our subjects, they're social sciences. So you're looking at such a broad spectrum of what are they looking for in an essay you have to submit, what are they looking for in your personal statement. And because there are so many topics, you're unsure if one topic outweighs another and you don't know sort of how to plan it and things like that. The hardest part will be will be to come yeah but wait, waiting was was difficult as well as the anticipation isn't it yeah for sure and the interview is really daunting but it's also quite exciting in a way even if you don't get in to get to speak to the people who are the best in their field in the like course you want to do it's quite exciting because it's really daunting because you never know what they're going to ask you and if you say <laughs> something wrong then you're just so embarrassing <laughs> but it's like exciting that anticipation of the fact that you get to learn from these people yeah, perhaps completely. If I get in, I am most looking forward to the expertise of learning from these sort of acclaimed people and taking their advice and learning how you answer questions, how you look at different aspects of, you know, Michael especially, different aspects of society, similar things yeah, yeah. Uh, to you. Also experiencing how an older university would function and see how, how it works. You know, you read all these things about... Um, how Oxford works, how Cambridge works, um, but to experience that firsthand, yeah, be quite, quite nice to look. Yeah, I think it would be quite exciting because we're headed to university, but we have no idea what it's going to be like. And to think that if you did get in, you would come out with like a, such an amazing degree and such an amazing level of knowledge yeah, yeah. about the subject. So now we're we're like on the edge of it, <laughs> and like we could in three years time be like, imagine how long how <laughs> much we'd that. know about it it's just <laughs> quite exciting but also obviously daunting and i would advise anyone wanting to apply to oxbridge to have no fear to not doubt yourself because i wasn't going to apply because i just thought they won't accept me it'll yeah, just be embarrassing but if you don't try you never know and i feel like if i hadn't tried probably would have regretted it and i don't think you can live your life like that so i feel like if you want to even if you've got a tiniest inkling that you want to do it yeah definitely similar to alana um also it, i'd definitely say that if you you need to apply for a course you're really passionate about and a subject you really enjoy because to write a personal statement and you know alana had to submit an essay i had to submit an essay you know, it takes a lot of reading and it takes a lot of extra hours and off subject things. And if you apply, if you're applying just because you want to apply, it's going to become very difficult, um, especially due to the, the sort of long hours you put in and the numerous drafts of personal statement and essays and things like that. Also, the course that you would be applying for, chances are it's going to be great at any university. So the fact that it's just available at Oxford or Cambridge is just a bonus. So it's not something you should set your heart on, definitely. But if you apply for a course you enjoy and is, you know, is available elsewhere, it's, it's quite a nice bonus. Definitely apply for a subject you enjoy and do a lot of reading around it.
So I think we definitely know now that reading does seem to be key when applying to Boxbridge. But I wonder if there's anything else that might improve their chances of success. And is there an ideal candidate you should consider applying? As a University of Oxford alumni, CHS Classics teacher, Mrs Barfoot, helps the school's sixth form students who choose to apply to Oxbridge and gave us a little insight into the process. I'm Lisa Barfoot. I teach Classics. Um, I am also the Oxbridge coordinator and I run the CH Scholars programme, which is the Gifted and Talented programme at Cheadle Hume School. I, many years ago, did French and Latin at Oxford University. Um, I've also worked at as a lawyer and then came into teaching and have been teaching here for 15 years now. My role as an Oxbridge coordinator involves overseeing the applications of all the students who are applying to either Oxford or Cambridge uh, and that involves making sure that they know what they have to do as part of the application process, making sure that they register for any suitable tests lining them up with an Oxbridge coach so every student has a coach for the subject that they're applying for who they will meet with each week for some additional support which will help them prepare for the tests that very many subjects ask them to do and will also help them prepare for the interview so every candidate who is offered a place will have been invited for interview and had to go through that interview process. As part of the application process I will review every student's personal statement to make sure that it contains the right sort of information. Oxford and Cambridge have a far higher emphasis on academic work and they want to see that you have uh, been involved in your subject beyond the curriculum so it's really important uh, that the personal statement reflects the sort of wider reading, uh, attendance at lectures, completion of online courses, all of those sort of academic activities that students should have been doing. I also am the person who does a final review of the school's reference, again to make sure that it contains the right sort of in information for an Oxford or Cambridge application. Lots of people ask what is particularly different about Oxford and Cambridge. One of the crucial differences is the way that students are taught. So there is a big emphasis on very small group teaching in Oxford and Cambridge. So tutorials, as they're called at Oxford, supervisions at Cambridge, tend to be one-to-one -one or two-to-one or three-to-one, but very rarely more than that. Students are expected to do huge amounts of reading. I think that the amount of work students are expected to do is probably greater than at other universities. There are very short terms, so an Oxford and Cambridge term is eight weeks, which superficially seems <laughs> lovely, but those are eight weeks of absolutely solid work. Because of that, it is not the right choice for all students. And also, Oxford and Cambridge don't necessarily have the best course for every subject. So I would encourage students to do their research, see whether Oxford and Cambridge seem right for them, see whether the course seems right for them, because the courses at Oxford and Cambridge can be very different to courses elsewhere. A good example is modern languages, where... The Modern Languages course at Oxford and Cambridge is very, very literature heavy, which isn't the case at other universities. So students need to research the courses and 
have a really clear idea of what studying at Oxford and Cambridge is like and whether they feel that it's going to be suitable for them. The people who thrive there are people who absolutely love their subjects and for whom going away and reading five textbooks on the English Civil War is their idea of fun. <laughs> Those are the people who should apply. If students are thinking of applying to Oxford or Cambridge, the first piece of advice I would give them is to get reading. Ideally, they should be reading already. The students who tend to be successful are students who naturally take their subjects beyond the curriculum. But wider reading is the single most important factor. So whatever stage a student's at, it doesn't matter whether they're in year seven or year 11 or in the sixth form, they should be looking for opportunities to engage with the subject beyond the curriculum. The school has launched an HPQ qualification for students in year 10. Uh, and that is a really, really good way of getting students to, to go beyond that is a really good way of encouraging students to broaden their minds. Um, the EPQ in the sixth form, again, is a really, really good way of giving structure to that sort of wider reading. In terms of the application process itself, Oxford and Cambridge have an early deadline, so UCAS applications have to be in in October. So that means that students need to be really, really organised in terms of getting their personal statement sorted and their UCAS form filled in. Most courses will require students to do some form of admissions test and that is an increasingly important part of the admissions process. So students need to do as much practice of those admissions tests as they can. We do provide opportunities in school for them to practice those tests and it's really important that students know exactly what's involved in those tests and they are as well prepared as they possibly can be. Students will have an interview and again, preparing for that interview is very important. Reading widely again is really important for that. We do a practice interview morning for Oxford and Cambridge candidates on a Saturday morning where we have a lovely group of parents and friends of the school who come in and give up their time to put those students through their paces. And that is a really good experience for these students who will not really have had that sort of academic grilling on a one-to-one -one basis before. The number of students um, applying varies from year to year. So this year we've got 22 of the current upper sixth applying and then three students from last year's upper sixth. It tends to be somewhere between 20 and 25. In the last few years, we've had quite a few students reapply. So students who may have been unsuccessful first time around or who maybe didn't apply to Oxford or Cambridge in the upper sixth, but have then achieved outstanding A-level results, decide to apply in the year after. My advice to students tends to be that they should give it a go. If they have achieved highly at the end of year 11 and they're doing well in lower sixth, they might as well give it a go. Because even if students aren't successful, going through the application process makes them a stronger candidate for their other universities. They will have gained an awful lot from the process. Relax, relax, it's not time for another lesson, but unfortunately, time is up on this episode of the Ed Podcast. But don't worry, if you'd like to know more about the academic side of life at CHS, you can visit our school blog via the website. Read articles about the extended project qualifications, more commonly known as EPQs. 
get to understand the power of reading, and in the latest post, Mrs Dalton Woods talks about the importance of independent learning. For now though, as always, thank you to all of those who have loaned us their voices on this episode, including our old Baconian guest, Annabel Hartley. And thanks to our roving Year 9 reporter, Louisa, for her absolutely fantastic, brilliant homework report. Once again, the music you have heard throughout this episode was brought to you by CHS's own Year 10 students, Max, Edward and Charlotte. And lastly, thank you for tuning in. No, really, thank you. It does mean a lot. Don't forget to let us know what you make of the show by leaving us a review or sending us an email to er at chschool.com. Co.uk. Whether it's just to let us know you're enjoying the episodes, what you'd like to hear more of, or less of, or whether you want to tell us how we soundtracking, whatever you're up to, we'd love to hear from you. You never know, you might even get a shout out. Tune in to our next episode to hear about how CHS will be marking the festive season, my most absolute favourite time of year. Find out exactly what goes into making 1,000 400 Christmas dinners with CHS's catering team Independence by Sodexo. Get to know which charities pupils across the school will be supporting this winter and how you can help them. Plus the different ways pupils have been volunteering their time to help others as we become better acquainted with CHS's altruistic side. Until next time, I have been your host James and look forward to sharing more CHS stories with you in the next episode of what will surely be another lively and exciting thought-provoking and hopefully entertaining episode of the M podcast. Okay, bye-bye.